My name is Christina Crook, and I am the author of The Joy of Missing Out. I want to welcome you to the JomoCast, a podcast for individuals who want to learn how to thrive in a digital age. Jomo is the joy of missing out on the right things, things like toxic hustle, comparison, and digital drain to make space for life-giving commitments to people and work that bring us peace, meaning, and joy. Jumana Abugazela is the founder and president of Pivot for Humanity. This comes after a diverse and winding career in advertising, marketing, digital design, and entrepreneurship, which Jumana decided to synthesize into a mission focused on bringing ethical reform to the tech industry through professionalization, creating a body of shared community standards and oversight, just as the medical and legal industries have done. Today's interview with Jumana has taken on a double purpose for me as I reflect upon the broader implications of the topics we discuss for our present moment. I've been particularly reflecting on her words when she said, you have to earn the trust of people to share with you what it's like to be them out in the world. It's a valuable realization for me that Jumana's mission of creating a more ethical tech industry and instilling humanity-focused values on the tech that shapes our lives begins in all areas with empathy, learning, listening, getting as close to seeing through each other's eyes as we possibly can. There are many, many worthy ideals we can serve successfully when we begin from such a foundation. I hope you enjoy my conversation for the absolute polymath that is Jumana Abugazela. Jumana, thank you for being with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So Jumana and I met at the All Tech is Human Summit last year here in New York. And all the things she was saying on the panel, I just was aggressively nodding. And she introduced me to this idea that I'd never heard of before, which is digital friction. And I was quite captivated by this idea of creating more friction in our digital lives, making things more difficult to do. And I hadn't really considered the idea of that being a design problem. So maybe if you could start off by telling people what digital friction is. Yes. Um, so we, we've grown up in a world where uh, experiencing things being uh, smooth and easy to do is the way to go. That's kind of like the highlight or the, the measure of good design. How easy is it for the user? And a lot of times we don't realize that that means that makes an activity uh, sort of thoughtless or mindless. And so removing friction was thought of as a really great uh, user experience design ethos and is the foundation of a lot of the ways we interact on the web. Um, But that means we're engaging with things without thinking about them, um, almost sort of we're on autopilot when we're doing it. So the easier you make, take this out of the digital realm, right? The easier you make um, it for somebody to swipe their credit card the more often they'll swipe it, right? You, that's the one of the big interesting things that happened when um, a shift when people stopped writing checks and started using their credit card. So you're not actually seeing the number that's leaving your account. And the idea was born that friction is bad and that anything that comes between the customer, the user, and immediate gratification is a terrible thing. And so as a result, we, you know, when you remove obstacles, you remove 
kind of all of the levels of intimacy and understanding um, and possibility, actually, that that um, would be possible had the friction been there. So uh, if you think about, again, friction outside of the digital world, you have to rub sticks together to make a fire. You have to do all kinds of, you know, it, when um, you're in a relationship with somebody, this idea that it's supposed to be easy is actually wrong because then you might as well date yourself. Right. Um, anytime you you want to grow, you want some friction. You want somebody to push you and say, well, are you sure? Or where did you find that? Or how, how do you think that? And so, and that's where growth comes from. Growth comes from friction. Um, understanding openness comes from friction. Experience really begins at the, you know, edge of your comfort zone. So if it's something that you've, you're used to doing, whether it's flavors, if you're tasting something new, is friction. It's taking you outside of something that you know. Um, and so in the digital world, it's uh, all of a sudden, anything that is more than one click is considered friction. That means that's too much work for the user to do. Um, that takes too long or it takes too much thought. Um, and that's seen as a disincentive for users. Like So that, that pushes you away from the product. And that means that my job is to make it easier for you to say yes. Always easier for you to say yes. Actually, the easiest thing is for you not to even recognize that you're saying yes. To just be in it. Wow. Okay. I want to take about 18 steps back and talk about how you came to be, let's say, at the All Decas Human Summit last year. So take us through your career in the different iterations and to where you are today. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, it's not a straight line. So uh, I've is. encountered a lot it of friction. It never is. <laughs> yes. Um, let's see. I majored in literature and philosophy for undergraduate. So um, I, you know, I love books. I love ideas. I love narrative. I love expansive thinking. Um, I love diving into other people's stories. And and uh, worked a couple of years and then went to business school. You know, business school was really, really difficult for me. It was uh, it was very different from the way I'm used to thinking and operating. And the measures of success were really different. So um, it wasn't about philosophical debate or understanding or going deep. Um, it was uh, it was about understanding a certain set of tools and having and a certain set of lingo and uh, feeling so comfortable much using it. So much lingo. So much lingo. So much lingo. But I went to business school and I, it was really hard, but I also think, I really do think I learned more than anybody else in my class um, because for me, it was such a hurdle. It was such a new environment and it was exercising different muscles. Um, so it was a really interesting sort of balancing out of right brain and left brain for me, having gone from literature and philosophy to, to this sort of environment of um, data and statistics and regression analysis and fact, fact, fact. And so while I was there, I was thinking, well, what's a good way to combine um, this left brain and right brain kind of that I'd, I'd nurtured? I didn't want to lose one or the other. And thinking about it, this in retrospect might sound ridiculous, but I was like, ah, I know, advertising. So, you know, it was like it's a creative space and um, it's also a business. And so it felt like a good place to sort of marry the two. And um, talk about friction then too. Having gone from business school, I got rejected by basically every ad agency in New York City. I packed up my stuff. Um, I moved over here feeling super confident. I have a Harvard MBA. I was, it was going to be great. No one would talk to me. Why? Uh, well, they called it the suit factor. Because you weren't wearing one? 
no because they thought the business school meant I I ha- was wearing one, whether it was visible or not. So it was interesting that, you know, thinking that you enter this environment that's going to open doors actually closed a bunch for me. Um, and it was, you know, they said, oh, you, you come from business school. You think you're going to know everything. You don't have a creative bone in your body. You're going to want to fix everything. And this is about being messy and all that kind of stuff. Like I can do messy yeah, literature. Right. Oh, I tried. I tried. I was like, oh, well, just just get hire me and don't pay me. And they're like, we're not allowed to do that. So it was uh, for a year. It was like, wow, it was a humbling sort of, you know, um, setback. But anyway, I found my way in and working in advertising was fascinating. It was like uh, I've never done it, but a lot of people talk about, you know, mind expanding drugs. And in a lot of ways, it was like that because you get to fully experience what it's like to be other people or as close to that as possible. In advertising, in my role, I was what they call a planner um, or a strategist. And our job was to sort of understand, uh, you know, connect the dots between the, the user, customer, consumer, um, the product or business or brand and the market. Um, and so in the most literal way, it was like, how, how closely can I embody another human being? So I had to learn what it's like to love cars. If you want to work on those kinds of things, you can't like speak for people um, and not get where they're coming from. And so um, I got to sort of wear these different roles. And, you know, it was like, it was like, playing characters in a movie a lot of the time, you know, this sort of method acting. So how do you go about that? Um, a lot of a lot of research, but up to a point, I think the most important thing is an openness to to otherness. Um, and this, you know, if you go in with any preconceived notions, then those are going to limit your ability to sort of grasp the world from somebody else's point of view. And so it's interesting when you start working on things like I mean, we're all typecast, just like actors, I mean, in in all of life. But in that field, too, you're just like, okay. so as a woman, you tend to be put in fashion things or, you know, like that that kind of space. And I was really fortunate to be able to work on things like uh, technology, like financial services, like automotive. And it's kind of like being in um, the middle of nowhere. And it's like you're it's humbling to be in an environment where you feel so completely out of your depth because you don't understand what motivates people. You don't understand what makes them interested and excited. And so that as long as you're curious, I think that's the basic sort of requirement for doing that kind of work. Um, And then to say, okay, if I understand it makes me think of a lot of different things. Um, and, you know, a little bit where it can get dangerous. You know, you hear about these these undercover people who go into these drug dens and uh, all of it is about what is it like to be one of you? Um, and doing that and then taking the time to shed that persona and then put on another one is a really gratifying experience. And it's a real opportunity for me to to learn not just about other businesses, but to become a sort of more thoughtful, kinder person. So um, you start with like, you spend a lot of time talking to people who aren't like you, you research a lot, you try to make holes in your own arguments. Uh, There are a lot of ways. So if you're working on cars, you spend a lot of time in garages, you spend a lot of time at auto shows, you spend a lot of time with uh, in bars, you spend a lot of time in different parts of the country. Um, If you're 
working on shampoo. There were times when I would sit in a um, salon or no, quietly as people were behind the curtain as somebody was taking a shower. Like you try to really get as close as possible to the, what the, what it's like for the person to to be them when they're experiencing the product you're trying to talk about. Um, and it it takes a lot of trust. You have to. It takes a lot of time, and uh, that's the fundamental thing. You have to earn the trust of people to share with you what it's like to be them and out in the world. And so, I got to do that over and over. Uh, in different forms. And it was exciting and exhausting and uh, hopeful and terrifying all at once. And so when I was at advertising agencies, it was actually interesting, not just because I was working with, um, you know, understanding these groups of people that I had no connection to, but also within the advertising space itself. So I was working with creative people and account people and business people um, and sort of seeing all of the kinds of stuff it takes to create something together. Um, at the end of the day, you might think advertising uh, is a silly business, but it takes a lot of different kinds of people to make that work. And it takes a lot of compromise. It takes a lot of debate. It takes a lot of negotiation. It takes a lot of back and forth. And it takes a lot of trust um, between the people working together. There are a lot of late nights, um, a lot of arguments and then I decided, so, uh, you know, I went, when I went freelance um, relatively quickly after I started, um, this is a long, long time ago, but uh, I went freelance. And so I started working at a time when still you would work freelance, but a lot of it was on site. And so you still worked with the team a lot. Um, and so I was able to build relationships with them. And then um, over time, as the gig economy sort of became more popular and efficiency started to um, sound like a better idea, a better, you know, like remote work meant uh, lower cost and uh, less friction, uh, I started to do a lot of the work I was doing remotely. Um, and I started to feel really the consequences of that, a real meaningful impact. And uh in the form of um, not distrust, but uh, having to um, very actively build trust, go out of my way to build trust with the people who um, who were entrusting me with their work. So um, when you're not in the office with somebody, when somebody can't see you work or puzzle through something or um, get a sense of who you are as a person, it's much harder to sort of um, believe the work that they give you when they give it to you. So I went from somebody that uh, as you know, assume that that I was part of a team to somebody who had to prove that the stuff that I was sending in a deck um, was coming from a credible source. Um, I was invisible, largely. You know, they might have heard me on the phone once in a while. There would be emails going back and forth, but they didn't have a sense of person. And so I started thinking, like watching the world and seeing how many more people were working away from the team that they were working with. Um, physically and what that looked like and understanding and started looking at all of the tools that existed to feed this remote work frenzy. And all of them were designed to actually minimize human contact. So it was, you know, um, even though we call them collaboration tools, they're actually sort of like it puts everybody on the calendar and then you can see um, who's working on what um, and you can schedule time with them, but also because it's a calendar app, 
the time scheduled is capped and we're all busy. And so everything is sort of about minimizing the spend, the time you actually spend with people. And then all of these articles and studies come out about how meetings are a waste of time and brainstormings are a waste of time. And you end up um, experiencing things when there are conference calls with people and legitimately people think they're doing each other a favor when they don't, don't chit chat. It's like, I right. don't want to waste your time. Yeah. So let me just get to it. Like we have the agenda beforehand. We drop right in. We don't right. waste an extra minute of your time. Right. Efficiency is king. Efficiency is king. And then I sort of started experiencing this personally. So, you know, a lot of the, there's in agencies and a lot of other businesses, obviously there are offices that are spread across um, the country and across other geographies. But, you know, so the folks who are in New York would get together and, um, come into the room, get ready for a conference call and be like, oh, hey, how are you? How was, did you see that show? How was it? And there'd be a little banter and they'd get that out of the way and be like, all right, are we done? Let's um, dial in Bob in LA. Um, and so they dial in Bob in LA and then it's all business from there. So the team on the ground has a chance to sort of create this, tune into this culture and connect with each other and think of each other as human beings. And then poor Bob in LA is kept out of that. And that's a, you know, a tricky thing. And they're thinking they're, they're being respectful of Bob's time, but what they're realizing is that they're excluding Bob. Um, and this kind of thinking, orienting all of our thinking to um, being busy and being respectful of time and that anything that doesn't actually contribute immediately to the bottom line is actually not just inefficient, but pointless, was very popular for a while. You could also see that it was impacting how people felt about the work they were doing and how dehumanizing it was to be. Um, Google did this massive multi-million dollar study a few years back, multi-year multi-million dollar study across all Google employees, all offices to identify what, um, you know, the drivers of the most successful teams at Google. So the teams that performed best, the most productive, most innovative teams at Google, what made them what characteristics um, drove those teams? And the number one characteristic by far was not, you know, intelligence or years on the business or diversity of the team even, or diversity of experience. It was something called psychological safety. Psychological safety in a nutshell is trust, the sense that you feel like I have your back and you have mine, that it's okay for me to not always be on top of my game that I am human and I have frailties, that I don't have to leave those behind when I come into work, that this environment is psychologically safe, that I can make a mistake and not worry that you're going to stab me in the back or, or um, reprimand me for it, um, that the rest of my life matters, that if I am having trouble in my marriage or in my relationships or, or need some time that that's not going to reflect negatively on me as an employee or as a member of, of this team. And so um, psychological safety was this idea that like it, when teams feel psychologically safe together, they also, members of that team will say things they won't say when they don't feel safe. That right. means they take risks. That means they come up with new ideas. That means that they will go further with ideas that sound crazy um, and not dismiss each other for them. Um, and so, you know, it was really interesting because Google 
identified this, and it's just psychological safety is a concept that comes out of Harvard and MIT, but it's interesting when um, a company like Google identifies that and you say, okay, so we need to foster psychological safety. But how do you do that at scale? You know, psychological safety is something that happens when uh, a group of people know each other well enough to trust each other, which means it's, it's constraining by default. And so you, you think like, okay, it's, you, you build safety across teams, but what if what happened? How do you do that when your teams aren't sharing space? Hmm. When they're not seeing each other eye to eye, when they can't see that you're tired, when they can't yeah. ask the right question, yeah. when they don't have the context. And so that was a thing that became interesting to me and led to sort of me starting um, Betwixt Us, which is um, a trust building tool for teams that, um, for distributed teams, for teams who don't work together in the same space. And the whole idea is basically adding inefficiency into like very efficient process, adding friction, adding ways for people who, um, don't get a chance to see each other or shake each other's hands or hear a tremor in the voice or see a flicker in the eye um, to, to get to know each other. And the, the premise of Betwixt Us, Betwixt Us is Old English for between, you know, so between us. So the idea is what's between us? What differentiates us? What makes us the same? What makes us different? And how can we figure that out? And the premise is as human beings, we get to find out what's betwixt us through conversation. You know, just like we're having, I mm-hmm. speak, you ask me a question, I hear you nod, or I see you, um, I see you react puzzled. And so I s- stop talking or ask a question. Um, and so conversation is how human beings get to know each other. And uh, our view is at Betwixt Us was conversation is what needs to happen at, uh, for remote teams to, for them to do innovative, productive work, for them to care about the things that they're building. They need to care and trust each other. So how can you, how can people who, who never see each other, who don't even understand each other's environment, build trust? And that's what, that was our goal. And what we found over and over um, was, you know, the, the community, the startup community, the technology community, the venture capital community over and over saying, it's not a viable proposition because it's not something you can do at scale. And that's what we're interested in doing. But you don't build trust at scale. Trust requires friction. Trust requires disagreement. Trust requires time. And um, if you're, if you're, you know, not willing to, to give it time, then you can't expect to reap its rewards. And so having gone from understanding very personally the importance of building real trust with people and seeing, being personally involved and coming up with really cool stuff um, with people I can freely disagree with, to trying to to get the idea across that this is we're losing sight of the fact that we're building all of these tools and a, none of these tools take that into account. Um, that everything that we're building in this digital age is designed to minimize human contact and human exchange and conversation and conflict, even. Mm that uh, removing conflict is seen as a good thing, whereas that's where good ideas come from, is from pushback, it's somebody challenging your thinking and, um, and allowing for diversity of thought and diversity of perspective. Um, and so I was starting to be disheartened by the reaction I was getting because it was like, but trust is really important. Everybody agrees until, um, you know. It's not scalable. Exactly. And so, you know, when I started hearing about Alltech is Human, 
And uh, I, I had been working on trying to get betwixt us to say, well, I'm trying to make tech human. And um, having that experience of that tech space is actually the reason why I, I started Pivot for Humanity um, alongside of Betwixt Us. So Pivot for Humanity is a nonprofit with a singular mission, and that is to professionalize big tech. Um, and what does that mean? Professionalization is not, you know, not a word that you hear often. Probably people under 30 may not even know what it means. Um, because we haven't had to think about professions in a really long time. But today, uh, big tech, social tech, data-driven, um, data-powered, you know, ad-driven technology is, is the seat of power. Um, a lot of our, how we live our lives, what we believe, how we think, who goes to jail, who gets the job, um, who wins an election, who goes to war, why they go to war, all of that is determined by... Um, how by our use of social media and by those who control the data, which is the most valuable asset on earth. Um, there is nothing more valuable than data. And the people who determine what gets done with that data are a small group of largely male, largely white young folks in um, Silicon Valley. And that's tremendous power that they have. Uh, and with that kind of power, you know, there should be some sort of responsibility, some sort of accountability. And all of these, you know, um, all of this technology started in a time of, of expansion. And we were all so enamored with this idea of possibility of creating global community. And uh, intentions were all good. Let's all believe that they were all good um, from the beginning. But at some point, when you add money and you add venture capital and you add KPIs, um, things get muddied. Um, and when you start, you know, working around move fast and break things, uh, it means that you don't care about what exists and you don't care about whether what the thing that you're breaking was good enough to begin with or not. All you care about is moving fast and breaking things. And I know that's, you know, um, Facebook will say they've moved away from that. And it's not just Facebook. It was kind of the ethos of the entire Val of Olive Valley, of all of startup culture. Um, even if they've moved away from it, you don't change culture overnight. That runs deep. So for those who've never heard that term, because there's people listening that are not necessarily in the tech space, what does that mean, move, move fast and break things? Move fast. <laughs> well, yeah, it means um, build things. Um, it, first of all, disrupt um, build build new things and put it out there and get a lot of people to use them, get people excited to use them. Um, it means uh, don't worry about the rules. Um, just go out there and uh, if, it, if it gets people hooked on it or if it makes money, then it's a good thing. Um, ignore the systems that exist today, whether they're laws or morals or societal norms. They don't matter. What matters is creating something new and making it popular. That's mm -hmm. essentially move fast Which, and break things. Right. And then figure out a monetization model exactly. as quickly as possible. Right. And, uh, you know, move fast and break things is, is exciting. Uh, it's also dangerous, you know, as intoxicating as you can imagine going, um, as a kid and saying that, like, you know how you weren't all those things you're not allowed to do. And all those people that told you, you have to wait till you grow up, ignore all of that. It's just a free for all. Just go for it. And here's all the money to do it. Yeah, exactly. And we'll protect you if something happens, so don't worry about it. 
I mean, that's a that's a risk taking culture and risk is good in some cases as long as it's thoughtful. And we didn't think about putting the thoughtful part of that. It didn't say move fast and thoughtfully and break things as necessary. We said move fast and break things. Right. Um, and the thought that, uh, you know, a few guys who like to code can create and shape society by by creating the digital infrastructure of society. What they're creating today, what Facebook is, what Twitter is, what Amazon is, is the equivalent of, you know, the Brooklyn Bridge. It's, you know, it's a, it's a massive undertaking. And if you're building the Brooklyn Bridge, I would expect you to think about the risks involved in that. People are going to be driving over it, walking over it. What happens if it breaks? What do we need to do to make sure it doesn't break? How do we protect it from people who want it to break? Those kinds of things. You know, a civil engineer um, is a professional, a, just much like a doctor is. A doctor is a professional. Way back when, uh, your doctor was this like frontier surgeon who would like cut off your arm and tell you to, you know, pour some scotch on it. The, but the beauty is at, at one moment in time, a few medical practitioners came together and said, some of us want to do the right thing and heal. Our goal is to heal people, to help them. And others don't. And there should be a way to tell the difference. And the way to tell the difference is professionalization. Um, we are willing to take an oath. That doesn't mean that we're a nonprofit. That doesn't mean that we're not going to make, I mean, doctors, we all know, are some of the- Make a healthy living. Yes. They're doing okay. They're doing okay. Um, but they're doing okay uh, while having, you know, uh, taken an oath and t- signed a social contract with society. They have another North Star. They don't, they don't just have make money. They have make money while healing. Mm-hmm. And um, in a lot of ways, it actually helps the practitioners themselves, the idea of professionalization, because it allows the, the professionals, um, the practitioners to say no to things they're not comfortable doing. It, allows, it gives them room. It gives a technologist room to say, that product is not ready to go to market. I know it can scale really quickly, but the risks are really high. And I took an oath. Right. So it allows me a way to define my boundary and uh, to hold on to my values. Otherwise, I have to give in to the pressure. Otherwise, you know, the, the, we're constantly hearing criticism of, of technologists and the people who make these technologies saying that, they, um, that they're responsible. But in a lot of ways, they're doing exactly what we're asking them to do. We're asking them to increase shareholder value at all costs. And that's exactly what they're doing. And so long as there's no other reason for them to exist except for increased shareholder value, they're going to continue doing that. Mm-hmm. Now, you look back on all these origin stories and the you know, myths of creation in the tech space, and they all come from really good places. They come from people wanting to see a better world. They come from people who say, I want more for my community. I want to connect people. Imagine if people didn't feel alone or information should be accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, Google once wanted to you know, organize the world's information, make it accessible to everybody. That's a really noble thought along with uh, don't be evil. But if you take away don't be evil, you know, and you're being funded by, um, this this is where my past and my past, my present, my future collide. 
Because I mean, I'm a, I'm come from advertising. I understand that world. I understand how it works. And I understand that in a lot of ways, it does a lot of good, but you have to, you have to think about um, the role advertising has as a, as a funder of society. You have to think about their interests. These, these are also interests. Mm -hmm. So when Google makes most of its um, money on advertising, a lot of what it uh, does, whether it's organizing the, it's the world's information and making it more accessible, is designed to please the people, the, those advertisers. Right. Um, which turns us into product. Pivot for Humanities is point of view is pivot. Um, you know, this idea of pivoting is something that's very uh, common in, in the startup tech world, you know, you go to market, you learn something in the market, you come back, you pivot, you, you think you were going to be something, but you realize you're going to be something else. And our point of view is that the, the, you know, big tech as a whole, this data driven tech um, as a whole needs to pivot. And the pivot needs to be from, from this free for all space where anything goes uh, of these rogue practitioners to a space that is professionalized, a space that is that cares about the outcomes and doesn't think of them just in um, after they happen. Um, it's a way for practitioners of the tech space to stop over relying on unintended con on the phrase unintended consequences, right. um, and to say, look, as a professional, you can still create, you can still do wonderful things, um, but you you will have. For a compass, you'll have your compass of, you know, what is your role in society? Mm -hmm. What is, what is that, that you hope to give? If the, if, um, uh, let me take a step back. So, so the reason why it's important for the whole industry to pivot, um, like, like medicine did, like lawyers did, like financial services did, and not to say that these are all, um, blameless, um, there are issues that professionalization alone can't solve, but, um, what happens when an industry or trade professionalizes is that it unifies the people and so the, the the practitioners. So it stops being, you know, it levels the playing field enough that everybody has to play by the same rules. If you look at the world today, you know, you're, you're, we're constantly looking at um, Apple and Facebook are primary examples of this. Twitter recently is on the page too. They're all knocking each other on, you know, uh, on social media saying who's doing it right, who has values, who doesn't have values. That's because it's all up in the air. Right. What professionalization does is create a unifying vision for the whole sector, for the right. whole trade. And so it takes away this like pressure to beat somebody to, to, to market on something because it, it, you know, it allows everybody to operate from the same set of rules. So professionalization starts with a unifying vision for the whole trade. They come together and say, as a group, we believe our role in society is this. That's number one. Um, and manifestos come from that. Oaths come from that. The second thing that comes from that is this um, idea that based on this social contract we have with humanity, here are the standards we believe we should uphold. Um, you define them, you know, so it, they vary across different sectors, even in medicine, they vary across different medical fields. Um, but uh, you start with a unified vision. Um, you codify that vision. So what are the standards that when you say you um, figure out how to train people, prepare people? Um, so what kind of certification is required? Um, 
and this is where it becomes interesting. I'll get back to this um, if we have time in the tech sector. Um, and then the fourth thing is how do you make sure, how do you enforce, right? right. You want to enforce these, these because it doesn't matter if, you're, if, if these values aren't enforceable, then they're not really meaningful. And so it's important that, you know, when people talk about the, the values that Facebook has or Google has and how as a culture they adhere by those values, but it doesn't matter if those values shift from, from company to company. What is the overarching set of values? that anybody in technology, in this technology, data-driven technology, social technology, um, will commit to. Um, what's interesting in this case is a lot of times the pushback I get too is like, well, you know, um, culturally programmers, hackers, coders, technologists, um, don't, you know, they, they don't like education. They don't like this idea of certification. It's not like medicine where you have to go three years through years and years of training and education before you know how to right. wield a, um, a, you know, a knife um, or a scalpel or understand how the body works. All, you know, technologists need to know is how to code. Is that how you define a technologist, like in, in the way that you're using it? Um, it's a broad term. I mean, it, there are so many different ways to define it. Pivot for Humanity is focused specifically on um extractive technologies, so technologies that you use uh, of our behavioral data, um, technologies that turn us into products. Uh, products. Yeah. So the technologists who work in that space are, um, I think of them as anybody who touches the creation of the product. So um, including the VCs who fund them. So anybody who makes possible the products that, uh, that the technologies that turn us into products. Um there's a lot of refining of that term that needs to happen, but I think this is why these conversations are important today. Technology used to be, I don't know if it ever was. I, I, think, I think we used to think of it as a, as a very different thing. I, you know, we used to think about the wonders of technology and technology seemed so foreign and so visible, but now it's, uh, you know, it's not something we touch or, 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 or can marvel at as human beings that operates in the background and, uh, you know, one of the things that we need to figure out is what makes a technology a technology, what makes it innovative or what makes it not. But anyway, I digress. Um, technologists today, coders, programmers, um, the employees um, who go into Facebook and Google um, and Amazon and Twitter and all of those companies don't necessarily need to have any education. They don't need to have a high school education, let alone a college education. Um, what they need to demonstrate is their um, fluency with code and being able to speak that language and operate in that language and be creative with that language. Um, and so, you know, from the area of professionalization to say that like, oh no, we require you to go through training is a tall task. Right. Like you have to have a computer science degree, for example. Right. Which you don't. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't have uh, a set of values or, or morals. Like we, we, we are as human beings are understand the value of things like like um, honor systems and honor codes and labels and certificates. Even as from things as plain as you know, uh, I don't mean to oversimplify it. It's a it was a complex thing to get to anyway, but you go to the supermarket and you buy an organic apple or an, or an apple that's not organic. And that's a shorthand for understanding some of the things that that means. Right. We don't have the equivalent of that with technology. With a doctor, you can go to a natural healer 
alternative medicine if you want, or you go to a, a doctor and you know what that means. Right. With every other field that actually impacts our health and well-being, you can tell it, you can choose how do you interact, right? what you interact with, um, except in this field. And um, a huge part of that is saying, uh, is, there, is training necessary? Yes. Um, what t- form it takes is still something that we need to figure out. I don't know. Uh, MIT just is doing its one of the biggest, um, the biggest actually, uh, structural change since MIT introduced the study of the discipline of management in the 1950s. Um, and that's to reorient education at all of MIT around this idea of ethics and liberal arts. Uh, it's a sort of a reckoning wow. with the fact that um, we've spent so much time separating science and technology from all of the rest of life, from history, from geography, from literature, from psychology, from philosophy. And now we are experiencing the blowback from that. We are understanding what it's like for people who have no understanding of what it means to be human or what it means to be foreign or what it means to be female or what it means to be black or what it means to be lonely creating these things in a vacuum Mm -hmm. and then putting them out in the world. And, uh, you know, MIT is saying that like, we have got to change the way we build technologies. We have to build technologies from within society, not outside of it. And so you're super exciting. Yeah. I'm thrilled to hear that. It's, it's very, very exciting. It's a like really brave, um, and forward looking, I think, proposal, the only thing I worry about is that not everybody gets to go to MIT. Right. So how do you take that and say, um, for those who don't go to MIT, but still want to play in the space, still want to be creators in this space, how, how can we prepare them to be good, creative, thoughtful, responsible, accountable innovators? Mm-hmm. How do we make it so that it's not elitist? that it isn't just the people who are able to go to MIT who are seen as qualified. Um, and that's the beauty of something like where, where you know, it's an opportunity to see how professionalizing the tech space is, is going to be different than professionalizing the um, medical space or the engineering space. What would be the closest comparison? Because I'm I'm right away thinking of the financial sector only because financial people in finance obviously are trained in a lot of different ways to come to finance. So would that be the closest comparison? Because medicine, right, most medical schools follow the exact same parameters. Well, from a professionalization perspective, I'm not trying to be glib, but it's almost irrelevant what the what the specialty is. The idea is that the profession as a whole, um, uh, you know, has a North Star or a God that is separate from profit. Right. So it's, um, it's less about the specific field that you take, but that the, the field that you're in or the pursue, but that the field that you pursue is in service of something else. Right. And so it's actually more about the um, ethical training and ethical certification and uh, establishment of values and identification of standards and accountability um, around those standards. Right. So it doesn't actually matter what, it's not about, did you get your degree? Are you a surgeon? Or are you an anesthesiologist? You both also right. create a, a 
you know, to higher power. To do no, yeah, do no to harm. Do no harm. Yeah. That's the unifying umbrella. Right. Would that be the same for, what would it be? What, what do you envision? Because I'm sure you've thought about <laughs> it, right? What, what would be that unifying statement for technology? Yeah, I, Christina, I've thought about <laughs> it a lot. Um, is it, uh, and I'm, I, you know, is it the right, um, direction. No, I, I've, I've thought about it a lot, but I also do think that it, it's, it, it's going to take a lot of people, you know, who yeah. actually understand the space from a variety of different perspectives to come right. up, do something. You know, the American Medical Association started because a group of doctors got together and, you know, I think it was 19, got together and said, we need to figure out how to do this as a group. And then slowly it, it grows. We similarly need a group of people who are passionate about this, who understand it from the inside um, and are willing to um, bring their varied perspectives to bear. And I'd start with saying, you know, the simple thing I'd ask is, are you willing to take an oath? And, you know, what would that oath be? Let's sit around and talk about it. Mm -hmm. One of the ways I would think about it is um, that I think is important to a lens to look through is. Technology makes it easy to do, and this is going back to sort of frictionless and whatever. Ones and zeros um, create a huge distance between between the coder and people. Um, you know, it's kind of like you know, if 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 you're behind a computer um, or a device and you're creating a program and you unleash it into the world, you are so far removed from its impact. You're like so far removed from the people. You're not thinking about them. And so the lens I would think it through is like, okay, as you're building this, think about your child using it. Think about your mother, your father, your community, your loved one, your partner. Um, build it for the people you love and worry about. Tell me how you would, how it would become different. What else, what, what would you do differently if you were building this for your kids? Mm -hmm. Would you think differently about how addictive it is you know would you think differently about um whether people how people can influence your child's thinking um i think that's for me a fundamental question mm -hmm. we should build things for our own communities before we unleash them into the world it's such a stark comparison to your experience in advertising going into a place, which is not something I would have ever considered for the <laughs> advertising industry to have to have to push your so, yourself so far outside of yourself to consider another person's reality. And that sounds like something that's not happening in the technology space. I mean, like all those classic films, and I'm trying to break this down for the average listener who might know, not have considered a lot because we covered a lot already on on this whole topic but you know the classic film of the hacker right at home even just the movie hackers right with the stream or the matrix right yes, like with the yes. streams of ones and zeros and the the classically completely like the loner right at mm -hmm. home having no contact with humanity like that is the problem that you're talking about in terms of this person is completely devoid of human contact not seeing how it's going to play out. And there's just being so many steps between that person and ultimately the product in the world. That to me seems like a hurdle that's just mm -hmm. so enormous in terms of how you get a person, like that's reframing even the way that teams work, mm -hmm. right? In terms of let's have someone in the room that's like actively using it in front of the coder and like 
Is that something that you envision? Like, would that be the ideal of like all those team members working more closely together? Like you're seeing like the coders seeing the potential user in the room and like instead of all those teams being so separate, because isn't that how most technology companies work? Yeah, you know, there there are a lot of ways. I think I think and that's why sort of I want to engage I want to embark on this professionalization journey with people who can who can sort of help reframe and restructure how this works from the inside. There are a lot of uh, yes, a lot of code is written um in a vacuum and I think that uh in large part that's not, you know, that's by design, right? Because um I know from my experience on Pivot for Humanity, uh, with Pivot for Humanity and our communications, that there are a lot of people who are working at those companies who are uncomfortable with the things that they are building, um, but they don't have a way to press that um, because of the NDAs that they've yeah. signed. They also don't know what to look for. They don't know how to know that it's bad. They all sometimes don't know where it's going until it's too late. Right. So. When I say by design, it's that if you if somebody says to you, I need you to build something that that um, increases engagement in this set of tools and your view of it is very limited, um, you just experiment until you figure it out and then you pass it along. For you, that's a success. Right. You've done your job yeah, yeah, and you've yeah. done it really well. And that turns into real time updates on Facebook on the right hand column that probably, you know, increased user right. Time by right. two hundred percent, right? Right, and nobody asked you to say, "What are some? What are? What do you worry about when you if you're putting this? What should we think about as right?" Um, and so I think that it absolutely getting teams to work together to humanize the users, um, more transparency, obviously, more power, uh, work worker power. I think is really important because fundamentally, you know, when I <laughs> what I learned in business school. Interestingly, even though, you know, as I said, my background was in literature and philosophy, what I learned in business school was that everything comes down to human beings and ego and relationships. You can talk about things in um, spreadsheets. You can, you know, um, talk about bottom lines. You can do all kinds of analysis. Ultimately, people make decisions and they make them because they either feel good or scared or strong or worried or in love. Um or, um, you know, insulted. Wars start because most of what we do isn't rational. We are emotional beings. Um, and to think that technology or businesses stand outside of that is an illusion. In all of the cases we did at Harvard, it was always like, what is the motivation of somebody? And how does somebody relate to that person? Okay, how do I tell you that I wasn't able to make the deadline? And what are the consequences of that? So. At the end of the day, people build technologies and people direct people to build technologies. And what we need to make sure that we all remember is that people also build technologies for other people. Pivot for humanity is the humanity word is, you know, not an accident, not accidental in there. Um, it's to say that, like, we are not robots. We don't operate like robots. Right. We shouldn't within the company. We shouldn't with each other. We shouldn't as we um, create for the future. And so I think at the fundamental basis of any profession, be it medicine or the law or or, um, or hopefully uh, social tech, um, that the heart of it is like, what is what is the right thing to do for people? And 
what is it going to take for you to make that matter to you? So like, you, you know, if it takes you thinking about your wife or your husband or your partner or your child, um, your community. I'm writing down what is the right thing for people. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a ridiculous thing, but I think ultimately it's to say, you know, we need to remind each other of our humanity. And a lot of this technology, um, I imagine Zuckerberg is so far, I'm making this up, but, you know, he's a, he's a human at home with his wife and kids and completely doesn't see humanity when he's at work. Right. They're different things. Yeah. And we need to bring him closer mm-hmm. to doing stuff that's good for people, not things that are good for the bottom line. But as long as they're publicly traded companies, is there any way to get away from that? Because uh, I need, I mean, I'll, just, I'll just humanize it yeah. for a minute. So my husband yeah. is a senior vice president of product marketing for a real estate technology company. Mm-hmm. They're publicly traded global leader in their industry. And every single quarter, no matter how much they rock that quarter, is irrelevant because the next quarter they have to gain. Right. Every step backward, like, you know, being straight across, like, just doing okay is always a loss. It has to always be a gain. And as long as that's true, as long as investors are wanting to see gains, and you probably invest in things, you know, we, like, everybody, most people are invested in something, and we want to see, like, is there a way, I'm thinking of Mark, now I'm thinking of humanizing Mark Zuckerberg. So, right, publicly traded company. He needs to see those gains for, like, is it possible for us to, going back to your question, what is best for people? What is the right thing for people? Is it possible for us to really have that question at the heart of what we're doing when ultimately it's in service of a corporation that needs to make money? Is it possible? I I would say yes. And, I you know, to do what I'm doing, I'd have to believe absolutely yes. <laughs> um, is it easy? That's a different question. Yeah. Um, is it straightforward? That's also a different question. There are um, finance companies. There are there there are lots of publicly traded companies that have fiduciary duty. Um, I'm not saying you can't keep going up. Although I mean, we can talk about capitalism on another episode. <laughs> um, but you know, there's also by how much, right? And who's determining? And how are we defining value? Um, when we introduced the, when, not we, I mean, when the, when the, the world started playing around with triple bottom lines, that changed the value equation. A mm-hmm. So, um, this is absolutely not about, you know, uh, saying that you, everybody should become a nonprofit or, um, you know, not trade publicly. It's, it's, it's bringing, it's putting meat behind what the business roundtable recently released the statement it released and said, you know, we should shift the notion of success from, um, you know, solely a, a profit to shareholders. And all of that started, we can, mm. that's another conversation in, with, you know, Milton Friedman and thinking of that, that that's the sole responsibility of businesses is to make money for shareholders. And so that's a relatively new thought. It's taken off, but it's not, it's, you know, it's not something that's been here for thousands of years. Um, and so is it possible to change? Yes. And I think that, uh, it will happen not because, um, many people care 
but because many people will have to care. If you look at the planet and what I mean, the, there are so many reasons to think about how we, how we need to recast what growth looks like. Yeah. Um, so growth can remain, but you know, what, what are, how do we define it and how do we re- reframe it for um, stakeholders and not just shareholders, but also for shareholders. Mm. I'm not saying you shouldn't make money. Everybody wants to make money, but um, you know, and you're seeing that a lot in the na- national political debate. How much is enough? Like, who needs to make fifty billion dollars? How much is enough? It's a great question, <laughs> Germana. Thank you so much for being with me today. Lots to unpack. <laughs> yeah, thanks for listening to all of it. I know I was uh, I meandered, but that's uh... no, it's good. It's a big topic. I think um, people that typically listen to the Jomo cast, this is definitely a topic that they probably have never considered before. I think part of why I love what you're doing is actually like this complete moonshot for tech. And I believe that this should happen. I think so many of us are just at a level where we're consuming and we're struggling, but we really don't believe that our voice or actions can affect meaningful change because these tech companies are so massive. And so to have someone like you who's like calling them into accountability and having conversations with people that can make those types of decisions to me is very empowering. <laughs> I'm so happy. To, I'm so happy to hear that because I, I do I do feel one, uh, you know, one more soapbox statement um, that there is a lot of dialogue about putting the responsibility in the hands of consumers. And I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's right, and I don't think that's realistic. I think that's a band-aid, and I think it's an excuse. So um, I'm here to say that, like, it's not a lot to ask. It's not a lot to ask the people who are creating these technologies to care about the people that are using them, to take an oath. And have accountability. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. You can learn more about our guests in the show notes and by visiting jomocast.com. The Jomocast is edited and music composed by Thomas J. Inge. Visit Tom online at tinge, that's T-I-N-D-G-E dot com to learn more about Tom and his services. The Jomocast is listener supported. Sign up as a patron at patreon.com forward slash jomocast. Patreon support makes the podcast possible. For just $3 a month, you will keep these conversations going. That link again is patreon.com forward slash JomoCast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast with your provider of choice. And if you loved this episode, leave us a five-star review. These reviews are a powerful way you can help us reach more listeners. I'm your host, Christina Crook. Thanks for listening. And may you find joy missing out on the right things.